Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out there on the internet. Go to my Twitter at Focus to Compound to get access to everything. That's where I push everything out. Um, so follow me there is probably the best bet to be on the lookout for everything that we're doing. Um, if you are interested in our money management services, if you are a qualified investor, um, we do have a hedge fund arm. Um, and if you're not a qualified investor, we have a managed accounts arm. Um, the minimum for the two products is different, but you could go to the invest with us tab on our website and get all of that information. Um, so if you're interested in that, reach out uh, to me, Andrew at focusedcompounding.com. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about something and I double checked okay. and we have never actually talked about this before on the podcast or dedicated an episode to it. Okay. We've talked a lot about competition. We've talked a lot about competitive advantages, and we've briefly talked about this on the podcast many different times, but we've never dedicated a podcast to actually talking about judging the position of a company in its industry. Okay. So I asked you one time, I remember, how important is the industry um, in, a situ in a company that we're looking at? And you said it's obviously very important. I think you had said in the past that 50% of a, a stock's return typically is going to be from the industry it's in and uh, the actual company itself, mm -hmm. um, you know, give or take on the numbers. But so, you know, Porter's Five Forces really runs into, um, you know, the company's positioning in the industry as well. Um, to help keep competition out. So I'm kind of curious to hear about how do you typically think about the position of companies in the industry? And especially in our world, if you look at across our portfolio and a lot of the names that we tend to focus on, it seems like there's some sort of local niche. Um, so there's local competitive advantages. Mm -hmm. How do you handicap that or think about that on a global company? So like a larger company. Um, you know, is it really from like a market share perspective? Is it, they have the brand, they have the habitualness of their customers. How do you think about that? Yeah. So it's harder to evaluate on a global basis, uh, because a lot of these advantages local is there's just more, it's more common to have local advantages. And then, um, I've, I mean, there's some ways that you could see it in the numbers. I've talked about the um, coefficient variation, so the relative standard deviation of the um, operating margin is one way to look. So, because generally that indicates bargaining power. If you have less variation in your operating margin, so like Costco would have less variation than some others. And in that case, it's pretty obvious it's because Costco is selling memberships, right? Whereas other retailers aren't. Um, but in almost any case, the companies that have more variation in their operating margin probably are in a weaker position in some ways. You can also look at cash flow things because the other way that a company can make concessions is in terms of cash flow. They can um, pay for things faster and be slower to demand payments from others. And that's a major way in which you can drive sales and things like that, especially if you are in a weaker position in your industry um, and with smaller firms and things, you could probably win business with people if you just were having loose payment terms and things like that. Um, so in general, if a company is generating a lot of free cash flow versus sales and things like that compared to their industry, it probably indicates that they have a strong um, 
uh, bargaining position, probably. So a strong position in the industry compared to others. Um, but the, most of the companies that people like that are very strong. It's difficult to tell um, because while they're not quite monopolies, they have monopoly type characteristics. And it's very hard to tell between how um, how well they're running their business versus what they might be able to accomplish and things like that. So it's really hard to when you know when someone says what could um, uh, you know Google's margins be or Facebook's or whatever. It's very difficult to know because it's hard to separate the market position from just how the company is run. And in many cases, having a higher margin might just be that the company's culture and so run differently because we don't have other examples that are easy to compare it to. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So like, let's say if you were to analyze, um, like airlines, for example, mm -hmm. are you doing like more of a, a market share? How much of the market do they have? How would you kind of think about like from that? Cause I mean, it's like, I'm curious. I mean, we invest in some industries where you could say, well, there's a ton of players in the market. Um, you know, if you think about like banks, for example, mm -hmm. and of course there's different things you could do from that perspective, but I mean, like airlines, for example, how would you think about like a company's positioning in the industry? Sure. So, I mean, some advantages or disadvantages they could have is access to aircraft. Um, you could learn things about that. Um, do, does one of them have easier terms leasing or something like that? Or do some of them focus on buying all exactly the same type of plane, um, you know, concentrating their orders that way? Um, what gates they have and things like that. Um, and then also the really obvious ones is like uh, cost per seat mile and things like that they would have in terms of um, uh, showing you information about that that's more like widely known in the industry. Uh, that's probably um, going to be drastically different from route to route. So most airlines will probably have like some routes where they're very successful and others where they're not. And it's going to be very hard to unpack that from the 10K. My guess is a lot of it's disguised and that there's some very good businesses inside an airline, but then there's lots of other businesses that are not so good. Um, and then also there's some loyalty things and stuff like that. I mean, credit cards are a big part of, uh, for a few of the airlines really big and there's international for some. So like it would be easier to analyze Southwest, you know, than it would probably to analyze American. So are there any other hints in the 10 K that point out to you other than let's say the coefficient variation or the operating margins that, they could have a solid position in the industry? Sure. So, I mean, it, it tells you some things about who they compete with and how big they are and all of that. Um, market share, you know, so things like market share and margin stuff are interesting because they, well, in a lot of write-ups, they'll say that this indicates that they have a strong position or something. Um, it's hard to tell. Uh, I don't know that having a large market share is usually a big advantage in an industry. It's more of a result of things that you're doing well. Um, and so you could maybe tell that if market share changes very slowly in an industry, then there, it's probably an industry that it doesn't have a lot of change. And, and so you, it might give you some more indications of how the industry relates to others around it in Ports Five Forces, you know, rather than to each other. But, uh, you know, so like something like, um, you know, Coke in um, colas and stuff, market share changes are very low in that industry where uh, they're very high in certain other industries. And so if they're very high, then it's the same idea with the volatility. But you'd also see that probably in volatility of margins between the companies, you know, if you ranked them. So if you ranked companies from least volatile margins to most volatile, and if you ranked them from least volatile market share to most volatile market share, 
the ones that have the least volatile probably uh, scaled to their mean, you know, um, those probably are the ones that have the, have a probably pretty strong position. We can't be sure about that, you know, but it is a better indicator of it. Mm -hmm. To your point about write-ups you read and certain things that stick out to you. I love when somebody will say this company has high barriers to entry. And then you look and there's like a hundred different companies in the industry. Right. I'm like, does it though does it have high barriers to entry because there's a lot of players in this market mm -hmm. the thing i talk about is a habitable zone uh, you want a small habitable zone in um your industry so just what i mean is if we're starting up a company today how long would it have to burn um cash lose money to get to what size to be able to compete with you and then also how much damage could you do to this company um obviously companies can enter an industry um, you know, even if they're unsuccessful, I mean, there's, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft are funded and so they're in an industry and they're competing and, um, same and even worse than that would be like, um, things that are for uh, food delivery. Right. And so they have funding, so they're doing it, but how long could they last? How big would they have to get? What are the economics of it that they would be able to compete with you if you were in an industry that's affected by that? Um, I usually prefer industries where that isn't a very big uh, it's not easy to get in step by step into the industry and um, slowly grow to a size that can compete. Um, so like technology or something is a good example. Um, and a lot of technology things, one problem that they have is if you have the best products, you have a higher price. But over time, you may cause there to be more and more interest in your product category. And so then it develops a market that's big enough at the bottom to have a lower cost, um, not as good product that can sell a lot of units. And then when you sell a lot of units, you get a lot of experience and things like that. And so someone can come in and compete with you that way. So it's hard to have, you know, a high end copier, even though it's the best and have all these huge advantages and avoid someone coming in at the bottom to compete with you where it's a lot easier if you have things like, um, you know, uh, say, I mean, some of this is local, but as an example, um, say things like uh, charcoal and ice and stuff like that. Uh, it's unlikely that, uh, you know, it needs to be sold in a supermarket where people are going anyway. And it's unlikely that they would want to carry more than one brand. So it's very hard for someone to come in and compete a little bit with that. So that's usually a pretty big um, issue. You know, that was always the example I gave with like um, BWX technologies. Uh, the issue there is that one reactor is a pretty big order and to be successful in the industry, you would need to have basically most of the U S Navy's, uh, orders in each year or else you have years where you're just, you know, you're losing money. And so it's hard to, um, get in with a test. That's a small kind of proof of concept kind of thing, which you don't want. So you want it to be impossible for others to come in to prove that they can do this uh, work and then to gain more share over time. Uh, so it's hard, you know, whereas like when you're competing with something that has a bunch of different vendors, like an MRO thing or something, and they're using five or six different vendors, that's an issue because if one of them is really good, they can take business from you. You generally want something where it's like, you know, like, like Microsoft Windows, let's say. Um, the reason a big advantage that you have there is that it's not like people are testing out two different operating systems next to each other. They ha should have no experience with other operating systems. And so then it's very hard until you get to a certain scale to survive in that industry. So small habitable zone. That's one that I think is very important. It's kind of like trans time, right? Isn't that their competitive advantage? It's, yes. It's very hard to get in the part of business for airlines. It's like there's regulation there. 
Mm-hmm. They have like most of the market share there. Right. But that. I think part that is, so they talk about that. Um, I know that write-ups of it talk about that. I think one thing people miss with the strength of Transdime though, is that in each category or in many of these categories, the market is so small too, that there is not a habitable zone for a third, fourth player, things like that. So it's like, you know, it's kind of talked about like, oh, well, there's this company that's the single source for all this stuff as if, you know, it just happened magically that way or whatever. But it's that if you focus on that part, there actually really is not a big enough market for someone to be number two or three for that part. Now, the overall company is huge, but many of its smallest components in terms of um, little companies inside of it, you know, there's not really enough of a market for smaller companies in that exact same product you know, um, cause there's just a small market opportunity and that's a big advantage. And that's why local is a big advantage, you know, um, most competitive advantages are companies that have really scaled. They started at a local level and then they scaled it out throughout the country. I mean, look at Walmart, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and declining returns as it scaled out. So it mm-hmm. scale was obviously the biggest advantage early on and locally. Yeah. I mean, Berkshire, their furniture businesses. I mean, uh, that's a good point. Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They have very big um, market share locally, which is very helpful. Uh, And then it drives down their costs and it makes it hard for someone else to move in and to achieve that. So, you know, when they talk about barriers to entry, barriers to entry develop an industry over time. The idea is really to move yourself far enough along in terms of what you can do, whether it's to lower your costs or, um, uh, or to improve the product in certain ways. Sometimes there's revenue synergies of some kind of stuff, experience synergies, things that are synergies that make it better for the customer to have a bunch of different things together. Um, if you can move those things along far enough, then it's hard for someone else to compete with you, even though they can copy what you originally did. They can't copy what you're doing now. And so if you're always a few years behind, you know, then it can become difficult. Uh, you know, and then the biggest, honestly, barriers to entry stuff the biggest advantage to have is really that if they come out with a equivalent product, there's no reason for people to switch. So the issue is that there's, you know, I've talked about zone of indifference before there has to be with products like this, where people are attached in some way to it. Sometimes a pretty meaningful zone of indifference in terms of if you could just reproduce exactly what your uh, existing company is doing, a competitor could do that. It's not going to achieve anything. You know, and that's what, always what I mentioned with the Richard Branson thing with competing with, uh, you know, with Virgin Cola versus Coke. The problem is it's not that someone can't duplicate Coke, even, but even if you did, what have you really accomplished? Because you're not going to ever have a product that tastes a lot better than Coke. Mm-hmm. Might in a taste test be slightly better. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have it that's much cheaper. Coke's pretty cheap. And you're not going to have it that has a much more positive brand. Coke's brand is pretty well liked. Mm-hmm. So it's very different than when he was competing like with airlines, which were, you know, Everyone not well liked, <laughs> yeah. uh, didn't have a great brand, all those sorts of things. And so you can have something where you're a big advantage over them. Having Saying we're going to do 10 things a little bit better is no way to take business from uh, someone else. It's, in fact, making like a worse product but cheaper might be a better way to enter the market. Yeah, and I agree with that. And what's fascinating about it is if you think about it, if you were to go and eat dinner somewhere and they had RC Cola for three bucks or a Coca-Cola for four or five dollars, I mean, I don't know anybody that would order an RC Cola for the the three dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's the big advantage that, that Coke has there. And, uh, and it's weird because a lot of people say that you need like a very, um, 
differentiated product and everything. But the very best products in the world are pretty much, um, they're actually more like commodities usually. They're brands that are selling a commodity. And so the big advantage that you have actually is um, that it's hard to top your product in a very big way in any one uh, part of the proposition that you have for customers. So things like ketchup, it's actually have it not having a highly differentiated um, product can be an advantage because it limits the ways in which they can compete with you. You know, that basically your decision isn't that this is my favorite product. It's so good because it's so different from other things, but it's that how hard is it for someone to come out with a product that um, is still ketchup, but is different enough that anyone would prefer it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times I think that products that are essentially really commodities, you know, they, they uh, are branded, but they are a standardized sort of thing are many times one of the best rather than something that's highly differentiated, highly differentiated might be fine for having a position in a market. That's good, but it isn't necessarily going to lead to a totally dominant position there. Mm -hmm. Being good enough in all sorts of different ways is usually one of the best um, things that you can do in terms of the strength of your defensible position. So bargaining power of, you know, or, or over suppliers. I mean, how do you typically think about that? You have written before that companies don't steal profits from other companies. They steal mm -hmm. the profits from their suppliers. Right. So, you know, the bargaining power is the thing that matters to me. I know everyone talks about competition and competition is just a factor that affects each of the other parts of how you actually make money. So it's bargaining power over your suppliers, bargaining power um, over your customers, and also sometimes bargaining power with labor and stuff like that. But uh, those are how companies actually extract profit. It's not an issue of how much competition there is. Um, how much competition there is may change the bargaining power situations of each of those different things because it might put you in a position where you're played off against competitors, you know. But really how you make money is through bargaining power in each of those things. And so I care a lot more about that than analyzing competition directly. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say bargaining power with suppliers. I mean, some of the simplest things is are you buying commodities or not? If you're buying a commodity, then you're not going to really have much bargaining power. It's not really going to matter, mm -hmm. but neither is your supplier. And so in the long run, that's one of the best things to do is to buy on-branded commodity things, turn it into brands and sell it. That's probably one of the best. I know that people don't like that there's commodity pressures on, you know, a Clorox or whatever, but Clorox is just a purely commodity product that's sold with a brand and it dominates in its category and it's dominated for a very long time. Um, that's one of the best positions you can have because they can never extract things from you. Uh, on the other hand, there's some that have a bit more of an issue. So if you're like, um, if you're like, um, uh, look, slight intermission, there's construction <laughs> going on. Okay. Continue. Uh, if there, if it's like, um, like a car maker is a good example. Cause mm -hmm. I mentioned this recently with inflation. I think with car makers right now, people may be vastly overestimating how strong their business is going to be in a few years, because the truth is they don't have much bargaining power over their suppliers. Um, they're going to build electric cars. They have no bargaining power in the long run for supplies of lithium and things like that. So they will, it's going to be that it just costs a lot more to make electric cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the prices for the commodities are high, and um, with uh, with um, auto parts companies, similarly, they're going to have to switch to doing quarterly adjustments uh, of the pricing to reflect the prices of different metals and things like that. They're okay with it to a certain extent, 
um, with doing longer term deals and stuff in the past. But now with volatile commodity things, they won't be okay with that. And so the auto supplier has a lot of bargaining power, but they don't have all the bargaining power. I mean, they're relying on one single source in many cases and don't have another realistic source in the same location for a lot of their parts. So um, it's a lot more, it, it's likely in those cases to work out that if returns get too good for car makers, it'll shift back towards um their suppliers and if they get too good for the suppliers they'll shift back to them it has to be shared really a lot of the profits and those things it will not all go to just car makers and not auto parts um makers yeah what about um finance companies then so like what's your supply is it more you think about from like a source of capital perspective? yeah oh so it's just a commodity thing purely that way your your input and your output are just commodity money you know Mm -hmm. to some extent it's differentiated in terms of how you distribute it but yeah, um, that's why I like companies that have the lowest combined costs of um, the lowest combined costs of your in- interest cost and also your non-interest cost because it's really just like having the lowest production cost. Um, it would be like having a copper mine that has the lowest price of copper and the lowest cost. And so that's a big advantage. And it's actually a huge advantage in terms of safety and everything if you're, a, say, a bank that is generating money at such a low cost, then you don't have to do risky things. Very often, it, having a cost problem is a contributing factor in companies, in banks and, and financial companies of different kinds doing dumb things, is as your costs get too high, there's a temptation that it's sort of like, say, a pension fund, you know, here's what we have to hit. So that's for you, let's work backwards from that. Um, the temptation is that, okay, if our cost is 3%, our cost of funds is 3%, then we have to make 6%, even if there's not good uh, opportunities uh, available at 6%. And so if, if your cost of funds was 1% instead of 3%, then you probably would be able to do things that are uh, less risky. And if you read, there's a lot of things where uh, problems with cost of funds, and including non-interest stuff, um, contributes to problems that they have in, in terms of uh, risk things. It's, it's, it's not, and not that it never happens, but if a company is able to earn a really good, you know, leading type return on equity without doing risky things, it's not likely to just start doing risky things to say, okay, let's do even better than our peers. Um, you know, as long as it's in the lead of the group, there's not going to be a lot of pressure to do even better. But when you're behind others, there's going to be a lot of pressure to do that, you know. And so having low cost is very helpful. And you can think of it as like a commodity. Money is a commodity just the same way as if it was oil or something like that. Mm-hmm. What do you do? So, I mean, how would you go about if they don't give what their market share is in the 10K, for example? What are some things outside of the 10K you can do to kind of get an idea of the positioning of the industry amongst competitors well market share is interesting because it's very even if they give it i'm not sure i believe it it's Mm. very heavily depends on how you define the market sometimes it's obvious how you define the market but in other cases um it it, it's up to a lot of debate about how you should define the market right Mm. so all companies a lot of times new companies you know will define the market in a very broad way so that they can have a high total addressable market and mature companies will define the market in a very narrow way so they can show high market share. So with market share, to me, the most important thing is relative market share. I think absolute market share is not very important. So relative market share meaning what? Relative market share is your market share versus the market share of others in the industry. So like um, uh, 
you know, as an example, like in cruise lines and st- stuff like that, I think I mentioned years ago um, when we did the report on um, on uh, when we, when I was looking into Carnival and stuff like that. I mean, um, it had uh, maybe half the market or something if we were doing um, North American cruise stuff. Uh, and then the second place would have had about 25% and the third place about 12%. So you could say 50% is a tremendous market share, right? It is, but it's really only twice the second place one. And the second place one is only twice the one after that. Um, I, I think it's a fairly concentrated industry and they have a large share of it, but I don't think it's very important that it is 50% is the number that's very important because of how intense the competition is with others having close to that. If you had 50% and no one else had more than 5%, I think that would be significant because other people sure. wouldn't have much influence. But actually the actions of the number two have very big influence in the industry and even the number three as meaningful influence. So it, from like a game theory perspective and stuff, it's, it's meaningful that they know that their actions are going to help shape the industry that way. Um, whereas a very small player, that's not true. They expect that the industry isn't really responsive to their actions. They can take their actions independent of what, uh, their actions then do to the market. You know, in a way they're thinking that I'm not going to, my behavior is not going to affect the market. I'm just uh, responsive to the market. I have to take it as it is. So I think, um, relative market share is usually more important. Um, but then the other thing is like how much, um, it's also an issue of sometimes you can have similar market share um, and yet the ability to take market share from each other isn't very large, so it may not matter. Um, I think that there's lots of cases where I, I overall I think people exaggerate how important market share is. Um, I think it's a very clear sign of what you've accomplished to get there. And so it usually means that in the past you had a stronger um business model in in terms of the customer liking it better than your competitors but i don't know how easy it is to use advantages of having a lot of market share to improve your situation in the future it does mean that you have much more control over the long-term structure of your market and so only the players with large share um would tend to know that that they have a big impact on it and that they could be more uh, aware of how the market develops over time and that might change their behavior. And I think it does change their behavior quite a bit. Um, so that's the thing that would be most helpful. I'm not even sure that it's better to have very, very small companies only competing with you rather than um, highly rational competitors that are, you know, some fraction of your size or something like that. And so I want to double click on that rational competitors. Mm-hmm. You've written a lot about that topic. There's a construction zone going on right now right next to us i apologize if that's coming through but the show goes on but rational competitors yeah yeah so rational competitors just meaning um y- you know well rational competitors it's useful if they think that they're going to be in the industry for the long term so that's helpful and if they think that they're going to have similar market share and stuff to what they have now versus you. So if there isn't a lot of market share shifting and things like that, then it's more likely that a company like Coke and a company like Pepsi are both going to think that they're going to be in this industry together for a long time competing the way that they do. Um, you know, it is, it's more of a problem if there's behavior from other companies that isn't uh, rational because of, 
Uh, it can be different things. Uh, right now, definitely the big one is being ba- venture backed. Yeah, venture sure. capital backing. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that as well. Because like land grab, go grab anything. Doesn't matter about and profits. no interest in having profits like ever because they probably feel that having profits doesn't help them get higher valuations and yeah. things like that. Yeah, and it may hurt them if it doesn't if they imagine that they're being valued on things like sales and stuff like that. So that is a very big thing that changes the industry a lot. So like uh, you know, as an example, the um, you've seen this recently where the um, food delivery thing. So food delivery combined with inflation stuff and things has probably contributed to why Domino's has promotions where they're offering things to um, uh, encourage you to go pick up in store instead of delivery because Domino's business model always loses money on delivery. Uh, they try to break even, but they probably lose money on it. Um, so they have never made any money from delivery. What they make money from is selling the pizza, but delivery helps sell the pizza. Well, obviously when you have competitors that are losing significant amounts per order competing with you now, um, it becomes harder for that to be a way to sell the pizza. So they've, you know, have to do other things to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so it affects their business, you know, for a while, even though they're making tons of money while some of the competitors that might be taking business from them are losing money. And then it's a question of how long they'll stay in business before they, they leave, you know? So the example I give with that always is like the insurance stuff. I don't mind if an insurance company loses money, say an auto insurer in a given year as long as they maintain a relative advantage versus their competitors, because eventually the cycle will turn. They're not going there. These competitors are not going to write um, at prices that mean that they're going to lose money all the time. So if Geico or progressive, or let's say you're looking at progressive and in the year 2000 or whatever, they lose a little money. They have a combined ratio of 102. Well, if their competitors are 112, it's not a problem. They'll stop doing that and you'll still maintain that advantage. It's a problem if you aren't better than your competitor. But in a business like that, as long as you maintain a gap in your performance versus your competitor, then you know that things will change. They're rational enough that that will change. There's no, you know, insurance is never going to be a business in which people will just constantly be willing to write business that loses money. Um, Whereas there are some venture back things that have been that way for a while. uh, And it's hard. So, you know, there's some that, I mean, the little industries and things like that, there's been some things where probably the venture back companies in the industry haven't made money for 10 years and they still exist. Mm-hmm. So that's tough for the companies that, you know, are, turn, are trying to turn a profit. Um, and, and so having competitors that are focused on funding themselves through profits and stuff is more helpful in terms of the rational competitor thing. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with you, both of us here today on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are tuning in, hit the five-star button on the podcast app, wherever you are listening to us. Thumbs this video up, hit the subscribe button, uh, follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. And of course, if you're interested in our money management services, uh, reach out to me, Andrew at FocusCompound.com. We have something for everyone. Again, that's andrewatfocuscompound.com. Thank you so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.